Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super agile, story, story from the space man. Come well lit. <laughs> Oh my god! I, I, <laughs> which is why we had to make the call mm. with Ujacha Tech because it's such. I mean, there's so much overhead. It's so asset heavy, and we were like, we don't know how long this is gonna last. And then just general global market trends of like what's happening. Mm. And I think the bigger conversation that a lot of people aren't talking about is why the market is crashing. The global mm -hmm. markets are crashing, mm -hmm. and it all kind of comes back to climate crisis. I mean, people can talk about all kinds of things, inflation and blah, 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 and, you know, COVID and supply chains and all these things, but they're all rooted in the climate crisis. Like right now with countries not exporting, hunger, famine, weather change, like we can see it in Taiwan. This weather in May is bizarre. Like it's really weird. So we're just kind of watching where it's like definitely reached the tipping point. And right. scientists have been saying this, yeah. right? We are heading towards a bit of a disaster. And that's like the big elephant in the room, right? The climate, the environment. And I think it's just too big of a discussion to have for like like talking heads to have on mm. the news in terms of connecting that to like the global market crashing. But it's fundamentally why we have to rethink everything. It's our environment. Yeah. I mean, it's literally <laughs> our place, our space. It's the environment. Without that, how can you build anything? How can you have anything? Yeah. How can you create anything? I mean, we're just starting to see the ripple effects for like our fundamental resources are going to just, it's going to be a scramble. Like nothing will create chaos, like scarcity of water and food. It's so scary. And Taiwan last, what was it, last summer was an absolute disaster. The drought, Sun Moon Lake was completely dry, which is the craziest uh, images for me. Well, yeah. I, and now it's like flooding everywhere, right? right? So now, now instead <laughs> of drought, it's like everywhere is flooding. And now there's mudslides and parts of the country are unstable. And so, I mean... <laughs> I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday and I was like, I feel hopeful some days and very hopeless other days. Mm. And it just all kind of feels bleak. Just like the sometimes. weather. <laughs> just vacillating from one extreme to another, right? Yeah, I mean, like last week uh. it was like we had this beautiful sunny day and then like the next day it was so... Just dreary and... Rainy and, uh, and... Yeah. Mosquitoes everywhere. Damn yeah. mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that's why... I'm kind of going through this transition and it feels like a very like big season of change. Like mm. all my friends, like from big to small, like everyone is going through like a lot of transition and change right now. Mm -hmm. And um, me, myself, really trying to think about what Ujacha is going to be doing next. Because, mm. you know, we fundamentally were never just a food and beverage concept. We started out, the heart of it was advocacy and education. And so the next step now, you know, we're nine years old. We'll be 10 next year. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but I don't know exactly what our next steps are. Like our mission stays the same is to kind of address like food insecurity mm -hmm. and equity issues through food, right? Through individual change. But obviously it has to be done so much faster 
and we have to be able to educate everyone in such like a deeper and very quick way mm-hmm. like to get people to really understand like the problems we're facing but i feel like gen z's got it they just got it mm-hmm. but they're just not the ones that can really enact the change yet yeah especially in taiwan so difficult we had a little bit of a pre-show discussion about that about the generational difficulties let's Mm. say the challenges in taiwan right Mm. yeah so even if the gen z wants to do something it's a little bit difficult yeah so in the u.s you kind of see this movement of change makers and policymakers becoming younger younger and younger right they're being empowered at a much younger age to kind of find a platform and start making change in their communities There's just so many different things happening when we don't look at things and kind of like as a whole system. Mm, mm -hmm. I think that's fundamentally where we go wrong. We kind of like try to extract these singular problems and solve them. Mm -hmm. And then you create like all these other random consequences and issues that you didn't anticipate because you didn't think about like the whole system and the needs of all the stakeholders involved. Right. Right. It's really complicated and complex. And I'm just starting to dive into it and like kind of understand. But I think a lot of the knowledge is actually there in our like indigenous communities Mm. and like our tribal way of living Mm -hmm. right and it's kind of like what you were talking about with like project-based learning you're like Mm -hmm. it's so intuitive and you did it before it was like project-based learning right right? and we already kind of did this back in the day like as apprentices and you know so as children too right yeah it's just putting stuff together going at it like experimenting and interacting with the world but it seems like we've lost touch with that in many ways capitalism capitalism Capitalism. with a capital c yes (laughs) okay let's jump into that like (laughs) i mean that balance between business and then doing something more meaningful right Mm. so i know that uchacha was incorporated as a b corp or you have to actually apply for that later yeah so they're called b corporations but it's actually a certification so yeah it gets a little bit confusing so (laughs) you can't incorporate as a b corp there's no like legal status for it the reason why i went after the b corp certification was because they look at social enterprises businesses doing good in a really holistic manner Mm -hmm. so it's not just about like are you sustainable environmentally right they're talking about like do you treat your workers well your supply chain Is it also thinking about the human aspect as well as the environmental aspect, as well as like, is your business also trying to do good? Right. So there's like five different categories that they look at in terms of like customer, like how you interact with your customers, governance, um, sustainability, and like the environment is just one part of it. Mm -hmm. And so I feel it's a very holistic certification. If you're trying to show your social enterprise is kind of tackling issues holistically. Right. So it was a really daunting process for Mm. a small business. And I learned a lot. Part of it was forcing ourselves to kind of look at every part of our business Mm. and get it all down in like Excel sheets Mm. and really understanding the numbers, right? Like how many of our suppliers are actually local Mm -hmm. and defined within their definition of like within a, I think it's like 50 kilometer radius. So it really forced us to reflect on all of our practices in a deep way. <laughs> and it took eight months. Wow. So what is that eight months from? So you start with a 200 question survey to see if it's even feasible for your company to potentially get the B Corp certification. Okay. 
You start with that. And then once you do that, you begin the application process Mm -hmm. and you'll be assigned kind of one account manager. And then you start filling out this really long application process and like it's just like questions and it funnels you to more questions that funnels you to more questions Hmm. to get you to point gaining questions so out of something like 200 points available you need 80 in order to become b corp certified okay so that's the minimum threshold minimum okay if you can score an 80 you will get certified oh you will okay yeah every two years you have to recertify and get a better score You have to get a better score. Yes, you have to keep getting better. So it's better to start out at the minimum. (laughs) I mean, if (laughs) you're like not an overachiever, yeah, practically speaking, yeah. But so um, they are constantly wanting corporations, companies to push themselves and think about how can they work better, treat, you know, their employees, their staff, customers. Like they want you to keep improving, Mm -hmm. right? And innovating. Hmm. Do you think that had a benefit on the way you run your business it is in the back of my head Mm. right if we're thinking about changing suppliers i'm like oh my god we can't just like go with you know some rando you know like (laughs) importer we want to look local right Right. so it is somewhat of like a guidepost it's not the end-all be-all because there's lots of factors we have to consider Right. right yes um because local is not always the best it is a reminder of what we want to be doing, Mm. right? And so it was really an interesting process to kind of, you know, think about all the different ways that a company can do good. Mm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that local is not always best. Could you get into that or maybe just kind of Taiwan's ecosystem in terms of sourcing and Mm. food and agriculture and things like this? What are some of the things that you've learned or taken away through this journey so far? I mean, I think overgeneralizing anything is bad yes right so when someone just comes out and just says you know a black and white statement like local is always better than xyz um we always want to do our research and understand and know whoever we're doing business with right so in terms of when i say local is not always best that also applies to organic you do need to understand what those certifications mean and what those terms mean Mm -hmm. and what they certify right Right. And so the organic certification can be problematic because there's usually a very long timeline to switch over to get that certification, which mm. can damage a lot of small stakeholder farmers who could be doing amazing things with their land already. Mm. But because of the standards for the certification, they have to do certain things for like five years to turn over the land in order to qualify. Right. Mm. So we're asking these small farmers to just like stop for five years. Mm which is that not more harmful to those people? Right. Right. I think there's ways to like kind of transition. There needs to kind of be the gray area where we transition a lot of where we want to be from where we are to where we want to be. Mm. So there's a lot in the vegan community, a lot of discussion around, you know, these um, plant-based meats, Mm. cell-based meats, the technology that's going into creating these, you know, like, Frankenstein meats, right? Like, you know, lab grown, cell based, um, plant based meats. They're using technology to figure out and scale this so that people stop eating animals. So the discussion is, or the debate is, whether that is actually better or not for the environment. Mm -hmm. Because they do take a lot of inputs to create these, right? It's better, it's a next step. 
obviously it would be great if everyone could be a whole food plant-based vegan. But in what world would we be able to do that? <laughs> right? Like we can't reverse and go back, you know, 300 years because unfortunately we've opened Pandora's box. We can't shove everything back inside. So it's just really giving people a new option mm. to satisfy that texture, that taste, whatever it is they're craving. Mm-hmm. Showing them that it's possible to get that without the cruelty, you know, of the industrial factory farm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a stepping stone. Mm. And that it's not a black and white thing. Should we rely on that forever? No, but we have to start somewhere in order to get to the future that we want to be at. We do need to start working a lot faster. (laughs) (laughs) That's a different. That's a whole different. (laughs) And you need everyone, right? So like I try to work on like the individual level. Mm. Like I'm trying to like connect and converse with people individually through our restaurants. Right. Whereas these companies are trying to do mass market. And if they can get anyone to open up to that conversation, totally, I'm here for it. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. So like when you start to get like so picky about like, oh, but we don't know what ingredient that is. And I mean, we don't know a lot of the long term effects of a lot of the things we do. Right. Unfortunately. Yes. So we're just kind of have to move forward and improve. Keep improving. Mm-hmm. Keep looking for the best solution. Right. Yeah. We're not going to get the perfect one right out the gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been a crazy journey. You said that it's coming on 10 years now. Mm. Can we uh, flash back, reminisce a little bit since we're kind of here on a, a bit of a sad note, but we'll get to that in a bit. We'll go back to the beginning. So it was 2013 was the inception of Uchacha. Is that correct? Yeah. So my husband and I met at UCLA and he, if anyone has not seen him, He's white boy from San Diego, blonde hair, blue eyes. He studied Mandarin when we were at UCLA together. And I'm Vietnamese, so I don't know any Chinese. He convinced me (laughs) it would be really awesome to travel to China and teach English for a year Hmm. and kind of have that experience and be able to backpack, you know, do the typical backpacking after graduation. And at the time I was working in public relations. And for me, it was not like the glamorous job that had built it up in my head, you know, I was in LA, like the epicenter. And I think that was my first inkling that I realized I needed to be in an industry that really fulfilled my soul. Money wasn't going to do it for me. Mm. Yeah. So I said, I don't know what I want to do now. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> it, did, it really didn't take any like, like convincing or like negotiating. Yeah. Nothing. I was twisting your arm. Mm, I was like, mm, you know, I've never been, but he had traveled to China the summer before okay. for about two or three months. He knew the culture shock that I would go through was going to be super intense. So in LA, you know, there's a really big Taiwanese community. A lot of his language exchange partners were Taiwanese. Hmm. So he's like, I know of this place called Taiwan. <laughs> it might be good if we like stop there first, like soft landing you can kind of get used to like, you know, Chinese culture right. and then we can go over to China. Okay. I was like, okay, Taiwan. In my head, I did like the very stereotypical sheltered American thing. I was like, you oh, did Thailand. Not say Thailand. I did. I totally was like in my head imagining, you know, beaches and palm trees and, you know, paradise. Riding on the tuk-tuk. Yeah. And you're like, where's the tuk-tuks? So that was like my immediate thought. And I was like, oh my God, you know. 
we like did very minimal research. We didn't have jobs. We just kind of were like, we bought our tickets and we flew in and we, there was like maybe two hostels at the time. And we found one hostel near Taipei main station, you know, coming in on the air, <laughs> on the flight. I was looking at the city and I was like, huh, this doesn't look exactly like I imagined it. And then like <laughs> when we were like going on the, in the bus into the city, I was like, oh my God, this is so different than I imagined. Like it was, it was such a shock. I was. So and, you got the culture shock, but for a different reason, yeah. perhaps. And, and it did take a little bit of um, time for me to really appreciate and understand Taipei. I mean, especially Taipei Main Station, because that's still a trip. I mean, nowadays, oh, it's a very my. unique uh, place if people don't know Taipei or Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, back in the day, it was just a tea. Like when uh, we came, really? yeah, when we came 13 years ago, it was a tea, right? And now it's like all over the place, but... Yeah, and I had never been on like public transportation. I was from the West Coast. I didn't right. travel in the U.S. Born and raised in California, Southern California, okay. Orange County. Oh, yeah. So two Orange County people here. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was just like super sheltered. Didn't realize how sheltered I was. Obviously. So hold on. You prior to coming to Taiwan, you had had not been to Asia at all. I went to Vietnam when I was six. Okay, to visit your family or, yeah. or roots somehow. My or, family. So my okay. mom's family was still a lot, like her siblings were in Vietnam. Okay. And that was the last time I'd been to Asia. I'd never, I'd never traveled to Europe, never been to like Latin America. Yeah. Okay, so you really were a mm -mm. Southern Cali girl. Yeah, I'd been to Florida and Canada. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, so. Wow. Yeah, it was intense the first two years, like getting our bearings and kind of figuring out Taipei. And then we did six months of backpacking through China, Southeast Asia and realized like Taipei has something very unique and special. So we decided to come back and make like the conscious decision to live as if Taipei is our home base. Hmm. Whereas before, when you're like living like a nomadic lifestyle, you don't really want to commit to a place. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you don't like buy the nice sofa or, you know, like and those things do affect the quality of your life. hundred percent. The sofa is the big one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like the first you're thing stuck. I think. If Once you, you get a nice sofa. Yeah. <laughs> like life over. is so much better when you have a nice sofa. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't move ever. <laughs> I know. So. Um, Ten years later. We. <laughs> It's the sofas that we still have the sofa that we bought. And so, yeah, I think when we made that conscious decision, our relationship with Taipei changed. Hmm. Spencer and I continued to teach. That kind of cultivated their true understanding of how important education is, hmm. especially at a young age. We were doing early childhood. Mm -hmm. They are just sponges. Yes. And they're so open and willing and curious. You can see the trajectory in Taipei and I think everywhere, but it's, I think, magnified in Taiwan for different reasons. It just gets beaten out of them. Oh, so sad. Yep. Testing for one, a big one. But yeah, there's a lot of reasons. You know, and that that's rooted in how you have to learn Chinese, like rote memorization. 100%. And it just infiltrates every other subject. Mm -hmm. And that's the mindset of how you should learn. Right. You know, when you see first graders being stressed out, it's like, what, what is happening? You know, like having panic, panic attacks when you're in first grade. Really? Yeah. That's so sad. It's super sad. And, but we did a lot of like hands-on project-based learning at our school. I 
was transitioning to being vegan in 20, 2011. So I had become vegetarian in 2010, right before we started backpacking. Okay. That was a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> that was poor. I like if there is a definition of poor timing, that was really bad timing. It's like, we're dirt poor. I'm deciding I'm not going to eat, you know, animal proteins. We're traveling in China. And the yeah. idea of vegetarian at the time was so, no one knew about it. It's just for the religion on the side, but. Yeah. And so it was, I was eating like noodles and rice like every day, right? right. It was just, yeah. You can imagine what happened after that. Um, oh, wow. Yep. So when I was transitioning to being vegan, I was learning a lot about like whole food, plant-based mm. eating, raw eating. I was making these crazy green smoothies every day and taking them to school and drinking them. And everyone was kind of like, what the heck is that? Like green sludge you're drinking. I was like, that's actually really good. It's really funny to me that such like a natural color is so ew. like grosses people out, right? It's the most That's bizarre so thing. And, you know, they come in with these like bright blue, bright like, pink. yeah, milk teas <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like, how is my thing disgusting? And like, yeah. So <laughs> they would all be like, I'd be like, I'd basically challenge them to like try it. Mm. Right? I'd be like, I, you know, mm. it's good. <laughs> and they tasted it and they started being like, oh, yeah, it is really good. Mm. And it, you say it's like super healthy. Right. It's like, also yeah, good for yeah. me. Yeah. Like, what? And I would tell them, you know, like I just find like seasonal greens and mm. blend them in. Mm. And they're like, oh, there's greens, like raw greens. Cause you know, there was a lot of like controversy over eating raw vegetables back mm. in the day. Right. Because of like pesticides and bacteria and stuff like that. So that was still the mindset. Mm. And so that was like the opportunity we saw of like how food can start these very interesting conversations, mm. right? And it really is a gateway. Like food is a gateway for so many things. We're I mean, like soft power, like Korea used it to like, you know, like yeah. create so much soft power, yes. right? And people will learn about cultures and different things through food. 100%. Yeah. So that's how we made the connection that, oh, maybe we should start like a small cafe serving more Western style vegan food, not focused on like the Buddhist, no onion, no garlic. Right. But kind of like more Western superfood philosophies. So that was the idea then. And obviously over time, my understanding of food has evolved. And so I like to think about more of kind of the environmental impact of the food mm. and not as much of like the health, because I think I totally bought into the marketing of superfoods. Mm. But it's like really food that is grown in good soil and the right environment is a superfood. Mm hmm. <laughs> you know, exactly. like it's like what we were talking about before. It's so old school that it's revolutionary. How it's like, like farms, soil, water. So sun. radical. So radical, right? So um <laughs> Yeah, so I think you know, my understanding of food has changed and that's okay. Like everything should evolve and Uchacha evolves with time. And so like my next step is really determining now that people are really understanding making the connection between the environment and food, what's the next conversation we need to have? Right. Yeah. So your original impetus for first shifting to vegetarianism and then to veganism, was that for health reasons? It was, no, it was for ethical reasons. Mm -hmm. It was a book called Eating Animals. Uh, Jonathan Safran Foyer. Foyer, yeah. I remember that book. That also blew my mind when I first read that. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing writer and he did like a deep dive. He basically became an investigative journalist yeah. for three years. Right. 
interviewed and went with so many different types of people. And I really liked that, again, because it was like kind of a holistic view of the landscape. You know, people have some qualms with the book. Obviously, it's not perfect. But it really gives you a lot of information to draw your own conclusion. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's trying to get you somewhere. Yes. He doesn't outright say it. Mm-hmm. But if you can't agree to be vegan or vegetarian, I think we can all agree that there's so much wrong with our food system today. Does it bottom line? Mm-hmm. I think that's where we can all kind of agree. And that's a starting point for us to go somewhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's fundamentally flawed. There's no way we're going to be able to feed 10 billion people mm. in the next 50 years. Speaking to that, what what do you think is the biggest difficulty here in Taiwan? Is it is it the education? Is it the knowledge or information about that? Or is it something else? I think there's a few different things. One is Taiwan as an island has to really focus on becoming more self-reliant. And there's a lot of arable land. It's just not arable in like the sense of like it's a lot of mountains. But the indigenous cultures here have been doing it mm-hmm. and they know how to do it. So one of the issues with the food system is this idea of like monocultures and monocrops that has just destroyed farming and food production Mm. and soil. Mm -hmm. And so everything with food production comes back to our soil without good soil. You're not going to get nutritious food. So it doesn't matter what you grow. If the soil is depleted, you probably won't be able to grow anything. If you do grow anything, there's not going to be any nutrients in it. So if we eat it, it's just like eating air. You know, like we're not getting anything from it or just eating fiber. Right. (laughs) So um, in terms of Taiwan, I am no expert on what's happening in Taiwan. But I do know that there's a lot of different movements happening that are trying to address how Taiwan becomes more self-reliant. The problem is there are still a lot of subsidies going towards monocrops Mm. and growing things to export. So I think that's going to be, I mean, we're seeing that it's a big question for a lot of countries right now. Mm. And they're having to take drastic steps like stopping exporting to other countries to secure their own food sources within their own borders. Right. India is not the only one doing it. They're just getting the biggest headlines right now. And so Taiwan has amazing land. It's just learning how to cultivate it and the will Mm. and the want. Right. To cultivate it because not many people want to be farmers. It's a tough life. Exactly. How do we really encourage people to want to go into these industries and look at them? Uh, There are a lot of technology firms that are trying to address this with indoor farms Mm, and and vertical vertical farming, farming, roof farming, hydroponics and, you know, aquaponics and things like that. But again, it's extracting a singular problem out of the system and trying to solve that. There's lots of consequences of putting all of our eggs into vertical farms, indoor farms, right? So, yeah, fundamentally, I would say (laughs) that would be the biggest issue is how does Taiwan become self-reliant? Singapore is addressing it. They put out an aggressive plan because they saw this, the writing on the wall years ago. Mm. And they've become this technology food hub in a very short amount of time, almost like two years, under two years, everyone wants to go to Singapore if you're in like food tech. And they've just created like some of the most fundamental companies for food tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So what do you think is stopping Taiwan from 
kind of taking that mantle or at least upping their game in that respect, since it is in some ways a existential issue for Taiwan, you know, being an island and having those environmental issues that it's facing. Mm. Uh, what is your take on that? This is my very unqualified opinion. <laughs> it would just be that <laughs> Taiwan as a whole is a very conservative culture mm -hmm. and the government even more so. Yes. And the financial sectors even more. Yes. Banking. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> as a foreigner, everyone knows banking is a nightmare here. Yes. Um, I don't know. How do you tackle an ingrained cultural value that they have? Right. Yes. There's just it could be education. Exactly. Probably. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So um, it, the more the people know, right, the more they will demand mm. from the government and their policymakers who are just very conservative in nature and don't want to do anything that could rock the boat. Right. Right. But if they know there's n enough public support, maybe they'll do it. I mean, we've seen the Sunflower Movement. We've seen movements actually create change. And so in a way, it's kind of funny, you know, like, Taiwan is the first Asian nation to legalize gay marriage, yep. which is a very progressive, mm -hmm. very progressive thing to do in Asia. Yep. It was early, too. Yeah. But at the same time, you see all these very, like, conservative policies. Right. Yeah. It's hard to... It's hard to change. It's really hard <laughs> to change. It can be really frustrating, and it's very slow moving. Yes. Considering it's a very small island, change could happen really fast here. Right. And it does in so many ways and doesn't in so many ways. Yeah. Which <laughs> <laughs> it's an enigma. Uh, I think that's, though, part of the draw of Taiwan mm. is so many people can feel this energy or potential. 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 Oh. Hi, Mocha. Hi, Mocha. Oh, my God. Oh, potential. I potential. I love she you, too. She just stood up. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so the potential, right? This unrealized potential. Everyone, there's so many talented people here. So many talented people. And the island being small and where it's positioned gives it a huge advantage. Some people would say it's kind of scary because, you know, our neighbor. We have neighbors. We have neighbors um, who are very aggressive. It is always a threat, obviously, but they've been able to create this stronghold of democracy with that threat a really welcoming culture but some of it stays very superficial right so you know if you want to change things you have to ask yourself how fast can we do it and how fundamentally will it change the taipei or the taiwan that we love right right um i use this example in food it's kind of taiwan especially with internet are exposed to a lot of ideas but don't have the necessary like experience or expertise or environment or environment to have experienced and so in food we talk about like the introduction of risotto mm. right like yes. this idea of risotto like you know i think someone just saw this risotto and thought oh it's a creamy rice <laughs> i know how to make risotto i'm just gonna use you know like asian style medium to short grain rice and put cream in there and Look, I got a risotto. And now it is everywhere. And in now this Every is the idea of risotto, right? And so risotto, yeah. if you were to do a traditional style like al dente, arborio <sighs> rice risotto, mm. I think Taiwanese people would be like, mm, it's undercooked. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's not a judgment. It's fair because of what their experience has been. 
but this is where I think we need a lot more diverse, like diverse voices in Taiwan and right. kind of a lot more expertise and talent to spread that knowledge. Right. Because there are so many talented people who want that knowledge. Mm -hmm. They just need access to it. 100%. Yeah. And it's really about delving deeper than the superficial, getting into the roots. Like f the foundational stuff, right? Exactly. Like learning about risotto. Like it's not, it, it is technique and it is style, but fundamentally it's about the rice. And so if you know that, then you can do all kinds of fun things mm. with risotto, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, you can add cream. Yes, that's not traditional, but you're not adding it because that's what makes it creamy. You're adding it for maybe flavor or something else. Like you're building on top of that foundation, mm -hmm. right? Rather than starting from kind of a messy foundation or a weak one, I should say. Right. Speaking of risotto, how about we dive into food because i'm getting hungry now <laughs> <laughs> so when i visited you for the first time i think i had the maybe it was a fajita bowl fajita, that's the mexican style one yeah it was so good oh thank you oh my goodness california girl exactly it's our california roots mm. that was very nostalgic a very nostalgic taste so yeah. what are some of your favorite things on the menu well so our menu is definitely in a way all over the place mm. the thing that brings it all together is everything's vegan right and we make it all in-house there's influences from my background basically me as a person california fresh produce vietnamese you got the bunny. mexican yeah so you know everything basically we grew up in southern california loving and being exposed to and so Basically, whatever I crave or want to eat, I try to put on the menu, right? So fundamentally, it's just like, what do I want to eat? Tacos. All right. What do I want to eat? Oh, a bun me, right? You know, so when you ask, like, what's your favorite? It depends on my mood that day, right? It could be like, I'm on a spicy mango taco kick or like I'm on a really healthy, like I want the protein salad, which is more Mexican. So I'm really fueled by my mood. Right. So, um, yeah, food. a lot of that food, unfortunately, won't be able to shift over to our original Guting space. Mm. Just mm -hmm. sad. So a lot of the dishes will kind of be shelved for a little bit. Okay. So you started this space in like kind of a hole in the wall in Guting. How, how big is this original space? It's small. Okay. It's small. It has 14 seats. Okay. Four of those seats are bar seats. I see. Yeah, it's very small. The kitchen is tiny. If you're familiar with ping, the mm -hmm. actual inside space is about eight ping. Okay, eight ping. That's a measurement here in Taiwan, pretty much Taiwan only, I believe. Correct. Um, <laughs> Correct. Measuring um, square footage, yes. um, but it's translated into something. What is it? I think they someone explained the logic. One ping is the size of a tatami mat. Okay. All right. So eight tatami mats? Supposedly. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty impressive having 15 covers in there. It's small. Or 14. 14. It's small. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's a corner space. It's really cute. It's right outside of Guting MRT. Mm. It's very convenient, mm. which I think helped us be successful in our first year. Mm -hmm. We also had like a lot of really amazing supporters and partners who love the concept and just like through so many resources and like media coverage at us. Mm. And that really helped us take off that first year. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty impressive because restaurants are one of the most notoriously difficult industries on the planet, as we know, right? Yeah. And you too were first time restaurant tours. Is that correct? Correct. 
Youth. Youth. You get to be so stupid when you're young, you know? Take risks. Young exactly. Taiwanese. You just please. jump into things. You're like, how hard could this be? Exactly. <laughs> Figure it out afterwards. Yeah. Oh. Wow. So how was that first year? I mean, that must have been a, a whirlwind of an experience. I mean, ups and downs and ins and outs and everything. The learning curve was brutal. <laughs> um, it was just putting out fires every day, which is not different necessarily <laughs> from, from today, like, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, earlier I just messaged you because I'm late because I was like, I have to stop by one of the stores. It's it was different, right? The hustle was different. Mm. Like we had nothing to lose technically or there wasn't as much at stake. Yes. And we weren't tired and we weren't old. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, like all of those things compound and you're just like, I'm so tired now. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Uh, So in the beginning, yeah, it was it was four of us. It was us and two Taiwanese partners. Okay. And we were working like 12 hour days. We were manning. We're just trying to learn what the customers like. We were learning how we operate a kitchen, a commercial kitchen, you know, like Googling everything making sure food gets out on time, everything's safe, you know, we're being hygienic and customers, like all facets of this kind of operation. So like I said, the the first year was a brutal learning curve. No one had restaurant business, not even your two Taiwanese partners? No. Wow. But they did have experience working for hospitality groups. Okay. One in HR, one in more the marketing aspect, but not on the operational, like in-house. Right. Yeah. They were crazy enough to join us on the journey (laughs) and I will be forever grateful to them. Shout out. Yeah. Shout out to, you know, Sylvia and Stella. Mm, Um, Angels. Our angels in the truest sense of the word. They were critical in helping us with our success. Mm, Like mm. they were just, I don't know. Obviously you can't tell what the past was going to be like. Right. But I don't know what it would have been like if it wasn't them that helped us. Right. right? Or like started it with Mm. us. I mean, there were so many things that I think aligned for us at that time Mm. that helped us take off so fast. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any regrets or looking back on it, what would you have done differently? So regrets, uh, you know, I definitely want to say I'm the type of person that doesn't live with regrets, but I definitely do have them. (laughs) It's nice to say, but... We have so many learnings. Like there were so many bad decisions that we made. Obviously in the time, it felt like the end of the world, right? That we were never going to get out of it. At times it took maybe like a year or two to really recover from those bad decisions, Mm. right? It was operational, financial. We learned a lot in the first like three years, Mm. a ton, just not just like running and owning a business, but also how do you grow? I think that's the biggest point where was that like the valley of death, right? Yeah. That's where you either... You survive or, or you fail. Right. And the the growth part was really painful mm-hmm. for us. And I would say we're not out of it, right? We're still learning. We're still growing. But we have a lot more wisdom and experience and knowledge to make better decisions. Right. You know, sometimes I sit around and think, maybe I should go to business school. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's like, why? It'd be a waste of time and money for you to do that at this point because mm. you've You've, You've basically done, it. done an MBA. You've done it, right? Three year. Yeah. Yeah. So on the job. I'm like, fair, fair enough. But you know, it's like this speaks more to female entrepreneurs, female business owners, or like first time 
business owners, there's just like a deep sense of imposter syndrome. It's like deep. It's so deep, right? Mm. And also recently, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And with that, they're just starting to understand a lot of like the anxiety and low self-esteem associated with it, especially for late diagnosed female ADHD. So I'm just starting to learn about that. And I'm starting to recognize kind of like these patterns and understand how they affect my decision making. Mm -hmm. I think this next transition or this next phase will be really interesting. Mm. Yeah. What have been the biggest challenges as a female entrepreneur here, especially in Taiwan? Do you think the environment is uh, nurturing and do you think it has improved over the years? Obviously, in the beginning, when we would have meetings and it was like me and Spencer together, they would always default to him about like decisions or like our dynamic. He is very much the numbers guy and I am very much the creative right? and the passion Mm. behind this concept Mm -hmm. it was interesting that all questions would be fielded kind of towards him or they would default to him Mm. right and he'd be like oh you gotta ask my wife about that Mm. right so like if we were to walk into a meeting together it was kind of like they would always like shake his hand first or you know so it's just like those little things that you pick up on now i am very much the people person and the socializer Mm -hmm. and the networker Mm -hmm. most people know me and so they will come to me that's right. I reached out to you. <laughs> so <laughs> Sorry, it, Spencer. <laughs> so it's, I've been able to cultivate that over time. So it's hard for me to get a sense, I think, if that has changed. Hmm. I'm going to guess no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to venture a guess and say no. But there are a lot more younger, really talented female entrepreneurs constantly trying to push these stereotypes and these boundaries and what they're willing to take. Hmm. Seeing that gives me a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. But again, I think this is rooted in the, you know, older generation culture. Exactly. We had a little talk about this before, uh, (laughs) before coming on the podcast. And uh, it's something that we will definitely continue afterwards as well. Um, It's a perennial problem for challenge for Taiwan. Definitely. And I think circling back to education, young girls need to be empowered to go into kind of different fields, encouraged. Yes. And cultivate, you know, either if they're interested in STEAM to go into those fields. Mm -hmm. Because I know there's a lot that are still discouraged, like within their family or even the school system. Yes. Right. So it's still tough because sometimes I go to some networking events for entrepreneurship or startups and you walk in the room and you see it's 30 men. And maybe if you're lucky, five women. Right. And there's a whole there's many factors, I think, that go into that. Right. And so how do we equalize that on an individual level? I gather a lot like I'm very deliberate about my decisions when I gather people, when I host anything. So I think on the individual level, everyone just needs to be aware that it is an issue. Mm -hmm. It's not like this made up non-existent thing that people are being dramatic about Mm -hmm. or emotional about. (laughs) Um, If people are aware, they can make deliberate decisions. Like if you're invited to be on a panel and there's no woman, you could be like, I'm not going to be on this panel. Right. We have a affectionate name for all men panels. They're manals. (laughs) I haven't heard that before. Manals. No manals. All right. I'm sure we're going to see a couple mantles uh, <laughs> popping up very soon in yeah. in Taiwan. The next event, I'm sure it'll be, uh, yeah. and it'll the ex- be a lot of mantles. And the excuse can't be, 
oh, well, I just, I didn't know. Well, do some research, mm. do some legwork, do your job. There are talented, talented women in every field. You're just not looking hard enough. Mm. It's right. not their job to pop out to you. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So after you opened up the Guting, the original location, how many years after that did you open up this second flagship location in the technology building, yeah. right, in Da'an? So we opened up Koji in 2017. I want to say 2017. Yeah, 2017. November okay. of 2017. So that was Guting's fourth year in operation. Okay. Yeah. You decided to take the leap. Do you remember that process? Was it Spencer's idea? Was it your idea? Was it someone else's idea? Were you guys still young and crazy and stupid? All of the above. <laughs> uh, it was chaos. Okay, our first probably misstep was pursuing a central kitchen without getting funding. We tried to scale by ourselves. At that point, it was because we had a lot of interest and inquiries about wholesaling from supermarkets and other coffee shops. Hmm. And we're like, oh my God, we need to capitalize on this. So we rented out a space to do a central kitchen to kind of level up the type of food that Guting could do mm. and also wholesale to different spaces. Bad choice. <laughs> uh, Don't do that. Bad choice. Uh, we didn't, what happened is we didn't really understand the market mm. of what they were willing to pay at mm. wholesale yes. for our food. Right. Right. And so we didn't really understand that part. And so the price we were trying to wholesale at was just way too much for a lot of them. We were like, oh my God, what do we do? Wow. And we had gotten one or two big accounts, Jason's and this uh, cold pressed juice. Cold pressed juice had its day in like 20, <laughs> 2016. Oh, really? Like it was everywhere here. Yeah, because I, I haven't seen one. Oh yeah, it flopped. <laughs> it was not the time. <laughs> it, was it, was not. Not the, it was not the time. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah. And Jason's, which is a kind of upscale market. Yeah. Um, we were able to start supplying, but then we realized like our team is too small. We cannot deal with the logistics. That's not easy. And yeah. Jason's does not care about you as a like artisanal producer. Right. They're just all business. Yeah. yeah. And so we're like, this doesn't work for our concept. We were just bleeding money. We were just bleeding, bleeding money. And we're like the only way we can, our next step has to be, a larger restaurant mm. that can house our central kitchen and serve customers, have an actual front of the house. And so that's when we pivoted really fast. And we're like, we need to find a restaurant location. Mm. I mean, in between that time, there was another project we pursued that like really blew up. And that's a story for another day. Okay, we'll save that for <laughs> that the next episode. A, that's <laughs> a story for another day. But, and that was huge learnings for us in terms of like people dynamics and power structures and mm. kind of... That's what we learned from that experience. But when we realized that project was just doomed, we were like, okay, we need to just focus on our company and us. We need a restaurant space. So we really quickly just like started looking around different neighborhoods that we liked and saw this space. It was really reminiscent of our Guting space. It was a corner, big windows, near a park, yeah. close-ish to an MRT, close-ish mm -hmm. to a university, lots of residential. So on paper, it looked really good. Mm-hmm. But we were so desperate trying to move so fast. Right. We didn't do like the right due diligence. 100% due diligence about the location. Okay. Right. The space just spoke to us. And not to say that that was a bad decision, actually. The space is so special. It's an amazing space. 
The location's not great, but the space is so, it was, I think, what we needed at that time. Mm. We built out a really strong community. We got to meet a lot of people through that space, which has led to more opportunities. So without that space, I don't think a lot of the opportunities we've been offered now would have come our way. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that space was needed, but because of the environment we're in with COVID mm. and global markets and food, we had to make the tough call that it's probably time to wind that space down. After how many years? It would have been five years this November. Oh my goodness. Just short of five years. Right. Yeah. How much of this do you think was due to COVID? I mean, us doing it right now mm. is 100% COVID. Okay. It's 100%, 100%. COVID. Yeah. We... We're on a really good trajectory at 2020, April 2020. That's pre-COVID. Yep. It was, you can see our numbers, like the trends, it was just night and day. And so we wrote out the first lockdown because we're like, okay, there's no way we're going to do lockdown again. If we can survive this, the market will kind of have contracted a little bit. Whoever didn't survive, didn't survive. And there will be a pretty strong customer base mm. when we come back. Right. And we know fall and winters are, are slow months. Mm -hmm. So we weren't expecting anything. March is when we start to watch the trend and it started to go back up. And we're like, yes. Oh my God, yes. And then as we know, Omicron wave came. Oh my God. And we just were like, we can't muddle through and survive for another year because it will put in our jeopardy our two other projects. Right. We are just like, this space is really like our heart and soul. Like Spencer and I put so much into like physically, mentally, spiritually. This space was like blood, sweat and tears. But realistically, it was a tough call. We we're just like, we have to let this one go. It's so asset heavy. It's a pretty big space. It has two floors. Yeah, right. When you yeah. walk in and then some stairs right next to the door that go downstairs to yeah. hooch. So how many ping is this space? Uh, 56. Oh, wow. So we're going from eight ping. <laughs> yeah, it was a big leap. And the thing is, like, we're bootstrapped still, right? Like, yeah. friends and family, mostly friends now who, like, love and support us. And we're so fortunate to have these people in our lives and who really are ride or die, right? Mm. And we are just like, we can't jeopardize everything right. for this one space. Right. And so we had to make the tough call. I've... Maybe have a tinge of denial still, but <laughs> it'll, I mean, it'll be completely gone next week when we really, really shut down. This is uh, Monday, May 23rd yeah. right now, um, and it is scheduled to close. May 31st. May 31st, which Tuesday. is a Tuesday. That's one week from now, basically. Correct. One week. Oh, man. Yeah, the one week countdown starts tomorrow, and it's just... Unfortunately, this is the plight of most small restaurant owners, independent restaurant owners. If you talk with them, it's just there was no real recognition of the damage done with the policies regarding Omicron. I was going to say that because this is a problem all around the world, right? My, my brother owns a restaurant in Dallas, Texas as well. You know, in the States, there are government initiatives to support small business, especially restaurants, especially yeah. hospitality, because those were the ones that were hit the hardest. What do you think about the response from the Taiwanese government or, you know, the policy decisions? Do you think the support was there? And if not, could they have done better or, or looking forward, what do you think that they can learn from this? Because I don't think this is going to be the last one, right? I mean, we're closing. <laughs> so, right. you know, there was until last week, there was no support, no acknowledgement. 
until last week, which is okay. Which is a month into this whole thing, right? right? But even that response was so, what's the word? Um, Like there was no awareness around what the actual struggle was. It was so half-hearted. It was, we will, we will subsidize up to 100,000 NT, covering 50% of a project to take your business to take out. To take your business? To pivot your business model to take out. So first of all, you have to create a project proposal about how you are focusing your efforts on takeout. And the money, the 100,000 NT, if you get that, only covers 50% of the total project. And it's only for like Google ads and marketing. Hmm. Right? This is the hospitality subsidy that's going to save all of us. I mean, we read that and we're just like, I mean. 100,000 NTD is 3,376 US dollars. That's three, three grand. Yeah, and it could not be used for labor or rent. It had to be. They have strict requirements about yeah. what they want you, you to, to use do with your business. Yes. And. Was there some kind of explanation or rationale behind this? Or do you not really ever speak to humans and you know, you're just dealing I no with bureaucracy? Idea. I, I, I don't know. I mean, because even last time around, what they did wasn't great. But at least they covered salaries for full-time employees. Hmm. Up to a certain amount. Last time meaning? The lockdown. Okay. The first COVID wave. The first wave. wave, yeah. The first COVID wave. When they actually locked down and stopped indoor dining they offered subsidies for salaries employee salaries hmm, okay it wasn't a lot but it helped and you didn't have to do like a project proposal right pivoting your whole business model and a lot of people might say well you didn't prepare or you know you should have seen this coming and so you should have already pivoted your business model my qualm with that is do you want restaurants to fundamentally no longer function as experiences and gathering places? Because if you pivot your business model, it's very different. It's totally different. Restaurants will not be the same. We don't know how long this is going to go on for, you know? Mm -hmm. You want us to pivot our whole business model. Yeah, we can di diversify revenue streams and, you know, X, Y, Z, all these things. You're smart. Yes, we get it. But do you want to still have restaurants? Mm -hmm. Yes or no? Right. And that was a big thing I know from this location, this technology space with that space downstairs, mm. kind of a gathering space for expats, for people interested in these kind of food or environmental issues. Mm. So what are some of your greatest memories in terms of building community in your restaurant? I mean, that's probably the, what I'm most proud about that space is like we cultivated such an amazing community and a diverse community. Like we had all different kinds of industries. Amnesty International met every month there. We mm. had Astronomy on Tap, like the Academica Sinica people, mm. you know, like they came and they met. It was just like, it was so diverse and everyone kind of coalesced and accepted like the vegan aspect, mm. right? And liked it. So, Mocha. Mocha, you're oh so excited. God. That's how she's so passive aggressive. So, you know, when you try to go pet her, no. Yeah. But if you ignore her long enough, now she wants she, it. Now she, yeah, now she, she needs the love it. now. Now she wants there it. There you go. Um, yeah, I mean, like green drinks happened every few months there, mm. and you got to meet like everyone interested in like the sustainability sector. 
I was hosting kind of startup networking events there weekly. And so you're starting to see all like this young talent that can't find their way in necessarily and giving them the opportunity to meet the right people and make the right connections in order to learn quickly and deeply in order to scale Mm. their idea is so gratifying, Mm. right? And like making those connections with people, it works for every industry, every network, human to human connection. If we haven't learned anything else during the Zoom era, so important. Like being able to physically meet with people. 100%. Is so different. Mm -hmm. It's also something we fundamentally need as humans is human contact. Right. Yeah. Over food. Over food, especially over food. I mean, what better way to like take the stress off of like networking? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. To be able to be satiated, right? With good food and good people. Yeah. If nothing else, you just talk about the food. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It was a starting point. There's low stress. And we also had like over 200 games at that Mm, space. Right. So you really have nothing to talk about. It's like a game cafe too. Let's play Cards Against Humanity. Right. That'll start some conversations. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think why I personally grieve that space is I know we likely won't be able to create a space like that again. Hmm. Why do you think that? Um, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, people don't understand how much energy and you know that goes behind the branding you know and the company and and the space but like there's so much that goes behind creating anything creating anything sustainable right Mm -hmm. Um, and especially when you have to you have to pay the bills you have to think of the business model but you're also trying to do something that's not just focusing on the bottom line right yeah you're trying to do something more it's so difficult especially the restaurant business yeah like picking social entrepreneurship you do have to be like a certain kind of crazy to like Mm -hmm. pursue this (laughs) because it like you know as they say triple bottom line is very difficult there's so many different puzzle pieces that have to come together in order for you to really get people on board and really understand and see the vision and think about it in a long-term aspect. That's why we never went after VC funding. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, restaurants are super risky. Yes. Um, in order for you to draw a hockey stick graph and get that 100x return, you would have to be like, I'm opening 50 places in the next year, exactly. you know? <laughs> and it takes so much capital, right? And it's yep. so... Um, just restaurants would be hard, but then you throw in the social aspect and be like, also, I'm very like socially conscious. They're like, no, <laughs> uh, run away. Uh, so we always knew that wasn't going to be a fit. However, mm. I do think that there are social solutions that will need technology mm. and those things can scale. Mm-hmm. So there are going to, it's just not me personally, mm-hmm. right? It's not to say that there is a fundamental mismatch between VC money and, you know, social solutions. Mm -hmm. But I think it just depends on what your solution actually is. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're ending that chapter of Uchacha on a sad note, but you did also allude to several projects. So you really are crazy (laughs) because you're you're still fighting. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's bittersweet because... Like I said, that space, why it's so bitter is I don't think we would 
attempt that again. It would be a really hard sell and it would take so much work and you would have to have the right team to step in and do it at this point. Mm -hmm. Spencer and I could not, you know, move that flywheel by ourselves mm. anymore. And that's, I'm okay with that. If there were a team that stepped up and was like, we want to duplicate that, let's do it again. I'd be like, yes, go for it. Let's do it. I will Anyone support out you. There listening, billionaires. <laughs> I will support you. <laughs> I will help. I, you know, but I just can't be, we can't be everything behind right. it. Yeah, mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that's for every business. So mm. that's obviously one of the biggest learnings is like you really have to make sure your systems and your team are in place. And so with our new Shinjuku location, mm. we were really able to do that. So like I only have to be out there once a week. Mm. Right. Obviously, the first month was a lot of grinding, a lot of hustling. But now that that's all set up, we can step back. And so we see that space doing well once we come out of this wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about this new Shinjuku location? I like that you're saying it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, it's in a Japanese heritage home mm. that's been restored by the Cultural Bureau. So it's a public-private partnership, like they mm. like to say. So right. the government technically owns the building, but they open it up to bids for a lease. And so the company that got the lease reached out to our investors and our investors are like, we would love to do a vegan concept in this space, but they didn't have a lot of restaurant background. So we had known them for a long time. So they reached out to me and Spencer, you know, we went and saw the space. We were not familiar with Shingju at all. The space was so cool. Mm. <laughs> Honestly. I know you showed me the, the original kind of renderings and I was like, no way. That yeah. is the coolest location. I mean, it's very rare that you get a standalone home in Taiwan mm -hmm. and it's across from a park. It's right behind the train station. It's a really cool idea. We had no plans of expanding outside of Taipei. We really looked at the opportunity and we said, ah, let's try it. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> We're let's crazy. See. We're let's still see. young. Let's <laughs> Some days I feel that way. Some days I don't. But, you know, OK, realistically, yes, we're still very young. Yeah. So we opened in April. Mm. Yeah, I know. Wow. We opened in April. <laughs> we opened in April. So we're starting to see a little bit of the COVID effect. But, you know, we are more secure there financially. Mm. Because, I mean, we just opened, so we have a lot of runway mm. with that space. And so we can really focus on the customers that are coming in right now mm. and really tweak everything. Mm. We're just like fine-tuning everything right now. And so it, it gives us a little bit of breathing room. So Shinju is about an hour drive away from Taipei? Uh, yes, an hour drive, but I heard the traffic in Shinju is terrible. Mm. So Spencer and I always take the train. It's so convenient. It's literally behind the train station. Okay, yeah. which the... Xingju, Xingju City train okay. station, the TRA, oh. not the HSR, the TRA. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so depending on the train, it's usually 58 to an hour and 10 minutes. Mm, okay. And you know, it's nice on the train. You can just kind of like chill, relax, maybe take a nap, exactly. you know, do some work. Listen to a podcast. Listen to a podcast. <laughs> Listen to this podcast. Exactly. So uh, that project has been really fun. Mm. It's been a lot of fun because it's very different food, totally different style and really got to flex our like creativity again. Nice. And did do you guys still have patio space? When I saw the rendering, it looked like there was patio space or huge. We have a huge deck. OK, yeah, because that was I was like, no way. What is this space? Yeah, we have like more than 20 something seats outside. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. That's yeah. cool. It is a really cool space. So I encourage everyone, if you go out to Shingju, there's not much to do out there, but you could stop in, uh, <laughs> have a bite, have a drink, 
and just chill out. It's a really relaxing space. It's pretty mm. cool. Yeah. And so the, the style is kind of izakaya style. Izakaya style. Yeah. Wow. So it's like small That's plate cool. sharing. Tapas. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, Asian fusion. It's more heavy on the Asian inspiration. Okay. Yeah. And are you doing all the cooking or? I'm not. We did. I did the menu creation uh, with my managing chef at that space. We created the menu. I trained them. And then he implemented, he mm. executed. What are some of the things on the menu that we should look out for? Uh, okay. We came up with this really delicious crispy teriyaki roll. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. I'm so hungry right and now. Crispy teriyaki <laughs> roll. Um, there's a Vietnamese style lemongrass tomato stew with oh. monkey head mushrooms. That's really good. I love monkey head mushrooms. I love monkey head those mushrooms. Those are so meaty. That's so like good. the closest thing you can get. Yeah. Is, those are amazing. So there's that. And then one of the other kind of favorites has been the Omni pork larb. Like mm, the Thai style. Larb. Yeah, larb. Wow. Uh, it's just a little spicy. has like a nice tangy dressing. Um, and then our spicy tuna. I'm doing air quotes. Right. Spicy tuna on crispy rice. Spicy tuna on crispy rice. Yeah. What is the form of that? Is that in like a roll or is that in a bowl? They're or? like little squares of crispy rice. Okay. With uh, tomato tuna on top Ooh. with sriracha mayo. Oh, yeah. Sriracha. Sriracha. Yeah, I can't go wrong with that. No. Yeah. So the, the sriracha, the spicy tuna on crispy rice has been one of the best sellers, okay. like very consistently. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the feedback oh. on that is great. So the uh, the patio is open and it's going to be open like all summer, all year round. Or? Yeah, it's going to be open all year round. I mean, you know, Taiwan's weather doesn't get, right. especially in Xingju, it doesn't get too cold. It's a little bit rainy. So obviously if it's raining, mm -hmm. we have umbrellas, but people don't generally want to sit out there. Uh, right now we're open only for dinner on Monday through Friday. Okay. And then Saturday and Sunday, so we're open all day. Okay. 11 to 11, I believe. Because we're still... We're still Is seeing soft whether opening still or? a bit because mm. like hiring has been a little bit difficult and we're still feeling out like the lunch crowds and mm. understanding what the best times are. But we want to drive a little bit of the cocktails mm. more mm. to kind of give a different flavor or a different understanding about what vegan can be through the cocktails. I mean, it's like this idea that vegans don't drink alcohol. We're not fun. You know, like, <laughs> we're total bummers. Um, it, it's just to kind of introduce a different vibe mm. to the vegan scene, mm. right? Like, hey, yeah, you can come grab a cocktail. You can chill out. You can have like nice food. It can be a different kind of experience than like a Buddhist buffet, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Or this very like clean and, you know, very proper or like right. very spiritual experience. Right. Yeah. But it can be fun. Yeah. And good. And delicious. And delicious. Yeah. Uh, what are the uh, the liquor laws like here? Or are there like regulations and restrictions or it's pretty much uh, all go? It's pretty lax. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's pretty so no lax. Worries. Yeah. There, there's very few actually bar licenses. Oh, okay. And most That's restaurants, like if during your registration, you want to sell alcohol, you mm. just have to make sure that you tell them that. Yeah. So there's, there's not kind of the U S system of like liquor licenses and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They can get very expensive in the States. Yes. And also they don't issue many of them. Exactly. Right? So it's really like hard to get one. Demand thing. Yeah. yeah. They're in high demand. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that difficult here. Mm, okay. Yeah. Just don't, serve underage people yeah don't do that <laughs> don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs>
So that that's a big no no. Uh, but you know the drinking age here is eighteen. Right. So. Right. Yeah. You know. So you can have young people in there. Yeah. College kids in Shinju and College people kids. working at TSMC. If you guys need some food, you know where to go. Yeah, the Jubei folks, come on over. Exactly. Uh, Hang out. Yeah. That balcony or that patio is absolutely amazing. Mm. I cannot wait to yeah check that place out. Yeah, we'll have you over. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you know, we do have another project at the end of the year. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this time of transition unfolds for everyone. And this is a, you don't have to uh, give all the details, but is this another, it's another restaurant concept or a restaurant business? TBD. Okay. It's a, it, it's another restaurant. It's a more of a cafe space. So it'll be a little bit on the smaller side, mm. probably fast casual. Okay. Yeah. And okay. we're I'm still working out what I want it to be, but we know those are kind of the parameters at this point. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So what do you think the next five, 10 years is going to look like for my and Spencer and the family and for Taiwan and for Ucha Chao and just kind of business in general um, and your future? What, what, what do you envision right now or how do you feel when you're looking towards the future? I mean, there's, I'm personally probably really bad at planning like very long term. I do know that some things won't change. Like I will continue to be like a socially driven entrepreneur. How that manifests, I'm not sure. I do have a vision and I've talked to some people about it of creating like a closed loop community. And it sounds very vague at this point, but it's like a very clear vision in my head. At this point, it's just learning more about all the different aspects of that from the experts and who's working on what kind of puzzle pieces here in Taiwan and what are the most pressing social issues that we're facing for this closed loop community to address. Mm. And so for me, that's like, I would say my lifetime goal, my mm. lifetime project, my lifetime goal. In the meantime, I would like Uchacha to kind of really start branching out into more initiatives outside of food and more addressing waste. Mm. Yeah, like mm -hmm. how we bring waste back into the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this closed loop system you're thinking in Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, as long as Taiwan continues to be our home base, that's where I will like MVP all these things. Right. And, you know, Taiwan, I've chosen Taiwan as my home. So that's also where I want to do good. Right. Mm. Like I want to contribute to first. Mm. But the idea will always be like, how can you take these solutions and use them in any community? Right. Globally. Right. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. So you envision yourself being here for quite a while. This is you said it's your home. And do you ever have itches or dreams to explore somewhere else or to go somewhere else? Or do you really think that you'll be here for a while? To travel? Yes. But to live? Not really. I kind of really enjoy and like a lot of different facets of living in a small big city. <laughs> right. Like, Just like the whole island, too. Yeah. It, it, I mean, <laughs> Taipei is so convenient. The public transportation is amazing. Crime is like almost non-existent. Right. Not to say it's not in, it not existent, but you won't face it in your daily life. Mm -hmm. So for me, it has a lot of the things that I need to just like get through every day. Mm -hmm. Right. There, there are some things that pop up every now and then that I'm like, oh, 
I really wish I knew the language deeper. Mm. So I could really connect more with the locals. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of whenever I have the bandwidth to really learn Chinese, that's on me. Mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> I, I know that it's potentially a problem that I can solve. Mm. It's just when will I have the will to do it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So I know you actually, uh, I mean, you are very busy. You only have about a week left uh, before the closing of this, this location. Yeah. So do you have any um, things that you want to say to the community or those customers, you know, those kind of loyal customers who've come in and enjoyed Uchacha? I mean, even though physically that space won't be there anymore, our community still exists. Guting is still there. It's just not it can't facilitate the same kind of in-person gathering but i do hope to continue small group gatherings Mm. and i hope the community continues to make connections and keep meeting i mean i don't know what's gonna happen (laughs) in the next five to ten years but all i can hope is that everyone who needs to meet ends up meeting so that we can start solving a lot of these bigger issues Mm. and i think we're getting there and even the when borders open up it'll be really interesting Mm, exactly yeah yeah that's the that's what everyone's waiting for right yeah let's hope i mean the rumor is july right (laughs) (laughs) that's the rumor so all we can do is just hope and pray yeah it can't come soon enough right no yeah it can't right Although this two years has just blink, right? I know. We were talking about that earlier. That time just, it's like a time warp. Time just flies and it's hard to know what's, uh, it's like vertigo, right? What's up, what's down. Yeah. Yeah, which way to go. Yeah. I think everyone's dealing with that in a lot of ways, right? So. It's just like we all collectively lost like two years and we're just now starting to process it and like, oh my God, what kind of damage has this done? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was actually going to read your, or I wanted you to read your last letter, but I was like, oh, wow. That when I read that, so this is the reason I reached out to you this last time, because uh, I saw your Facebook post, that final post that Mm. I think you and Spencer had written. Um, It's in Chinese and then goes into English um, and just kind of is like a little farewell note to, Mm. yeah, to the people who've enjoyed Uchacha either once or or many times. And let me look at it right here. Oh my God, I'm going to cry if you read it. (laughs) Oh, it took, it took a lot to like, you know, write that. (sighs) Did Spencer write this Chinese? No. So I, I, I wrote the English and then I actually sent it to a friend who is pretty much like almost native in both languages. Okay. And he really helped. I gave him the tone that I was looking for and like kind of the vocabulary to use. And he was, I think, really able to capture the essence in Chinese. Can we, (laughs) can we have you read it? Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. This will be our final goodbye. And then also we do have, hopefully we can get this episode out before tomorrow so that we will have one week left. And if anyone hears this, please stop by their location, say hi to my Spencer and the rest of the family. Enjoy a last meal because this space will no longer be unless Guo Taiming is listening to this and, and <laughs> drops a, a million or a billion dollars. Uh, that is, <laughs> that will be, oh, that will be very welcome. If that doesn't happen, then they're moving on to to new things and new adventures. So this is the final 
letter that was on their Uchacha Facebook page. It was posted on May 6th at 2.18 p.m. It has thousands of likes and hundreds of comments from people who have enjoyed this space. So I will let my, if she can get through it, uh, oh read this out loud to you all so you can hear it in Mai's voice. Okay, let me see. Actually, let me pull it up on my phone. No problem. Was the goal to try to make me cry? I, I, no. Was that like I, a secret no. <laughs> on your like notepad, yeah, like exactly. goals for today? Check. Check this. Okay, backstory. Yep, got it. Exactly. Okay, needs to shed no, a I'm tear. No, I'm telling you this. I've only been in there once and I was, but I, I love the space and you were so welcoming. I'll, I'll just tell a, a brief story while Maya's getting uh, ready <laughs> to <laughs> breathe a little bit. But one of my good friends here, Oshani, who is yeah also kind of vegan in, rock star. Exactly. She is just a rock star in general, mm. but a vegan rock star and yeah. a environmental rock star and amazing human being. Um, and a good friend of mine and we were talking about her new venture which is called Yellow Zebra here in Taiwan so please check that out as well and then I knew that one of our mutual friends Karen knew you so mm. I asked her to kind of hook us up and I asked you if it was okay for me to bring over my friend you didn't know who Oshani was but you are very welcoming and um, you know, you invited us into this space and we talked about food and education and all of these kind of things. So to see this letter just kind of pop up one day, I was like, no way. And I'm sure that most anyone who loves and dines at your place felt that same way, as we can see from the comments. So anyway, this is kind of the backstory. So if you can, I would love if you could share that with everyone um, again in your own voice. Mocha, leave her alone. <laughs> Oh, good girl. She's giving me kisses I before know. I have to do this. Exactly. Okay. Here we go. Um, to our Uchacha family. It is with great sadness that we announce the closing of our flagship technology building space in Da'an on May 31st, 2022. After surviving a difficult 2021, this latest wave has taken an unexpectedly heavy toll. The past five years of growth and community have been remarkable, and we owe it to the generous support of all of you and our team. This space was a new beginning after a tumultuous chapter in our journey as first-time restaurant owners in our adopted home of Taiwan. Uchacha started in 2013 as a tiny corner cafe with 14 seats and grew into our Daan space, which allowed us to meet and feed thousands of people. We felt honored and humbled to support people doing work that changed people's lives in our basement space, lovingly nicknamed Hooch. We know it is no small feat to survive in Taipei's food scene, and it only happened because of you. The nature of small businesses, particularly restaurants, as you, as many know, is risky. We don't do it for the glory or the razor-thin margins. Most of us just have a passion that we are crazy enough to want to share with as many people as possible. For us, it was a dream to build an equitable and sustainable world, starting with what's on our plates, one belly at a time. We were steadfast not only in the quality and sourcing of our food, but also in the quality of life for our team. Restaurant work is hard. There's no getting around it, but we maintained a standard to give our staff livable wages without the grueling 12-hour days. As we saw during the lockdown in 2021, many places shuttered and we, ne we inevitably lost bits of the soul of our favorite neighborhoods. It may seem insignificant, but we have all felt the loss and mourned our favorite restaurant closing its doors for the last time. They provide us a space to connect on a human level. No matter who, what, or where we are, we must all eat. 
Food is often an expression of love, celebration, and a reminder of home. Restaurants are a physical manifestation of our innate need to find community and experience life's little joys together. Ours is not a unique story, and in the coming weeks and months to follow, it won't be the last. While Taiwan moves into its next phase of learning to live with COVID, we hope small businesses in hospitality are offered some swift and meaningful assistance, or there will be little left of the magic that makes Taipei and its food scene so special. Sure, there will always be larger chains, deeper pockets, and hospitality conglomerates to fill the obvious voids. But what kind of city would that be? Not the one we love and choose to call home. We are lucky to still operate our original Guting location and have new projects in the way this year, so we continue to be grateful. In the meantime, we would love to celebrate our technology building space this month for all the connections it's fostered and the bellies it has satisfied. Come pick up your favorite bites, reminisce with us and the team, and help us close this chapter on a high note. We aren't closed to any opportunities for this space, so please feel free to reach out. We don't think any of us fully understand the impacts of the last few years, but what we do know is that nothing beats the energy of good food and good company in a lovingly built space. Be kind, Mayan Spencer. I did it. Thank you, thank you so much, Mai, for coming and for sharing your story. Thank you for being a rock star. Thank you for being courageous, and I wish you the best of luck with the new projects and everything going forward as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, we are out. Peace out.